Oh, great, high and mighty God, we come before you broken and sinful and in need of a Savior today. We thank you for the blood of your dear Son that was spilt on that cross 2,000 years ago to save a fallen world, and we count ourselves as that. We ask for that blood to wash away our sin. Not that we deserve it, Lord, we don't, but we desperately need it. We pray for his righteousness to cover us because we have none to offer you. And Lord, we request, humbly request your presence in this room that the prince of darkness will, and, and his attempts to distract us, Lord, will be defeated. We pray, Lord, that you will shut us in that secret place of the Most High just now, that we will abide under the shadow of the Almighty and that you will be our teacher. Send us the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, you promised you would send him if we asked, and we do so now. And Lord, you know the instrument you have to work through now, and I pray that you will bring to his remembrance the things you've taught him as you promised in John 14, 26, that you will touch his lips with that coal from off the altar, dear God, that your words will be found in his mouth. We thank you for this, and above all, Lord, may your name be glorified and soul saved in the kingdom, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, once again, I want to welcome each one to our second presentation. And in our first presentation, we discovered that the earthly sanctuary was actually a model of the sanctuary in heaven. That the one in heaven is the real deal. The one on earth is a model. Why? To help us understand what's going on up there. The sanctuary in heaven is actually the center, the great center of activity of, in God's plan to save a fallen world. And, and God gave us this model so that we can cooperate intelligently with what God is doing in heaven. And for us to do that, we have to know what's going on. We discovered in our last study that the sanctuary was given to Israel by God as a mechanism of instruction to teach Israel God's plan of salvation, not for them to hoard it to themselves, but to share it with the world. In the sanctuary, we find the science of salvation. And in our study last week, we learned that step number one in God's plan of salvation is number one, we've got to come to Jesus for it. That's what we learned. Now what I'd like for us to do is to turn back the pages of time to an incident that took place at the foot of Mount Sinai. This incident takes place after God has uh, delivered Israel from Egyptian bondage. And while they were there, God, uh, through Moses, presents to Israel the Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments is actually the covenant between Israel and their God. And uh, we know the story. Uh, they entered into that covenant relationship. Moses goes back up into uh, Mount Sinai to commune with God, and he was gone a little bit too long, in fact, 40 days. And uh, the, the people, the children of Israel, kind of gave up on him, and they figured he must have died. And then what they did next resulted in them breaking the covenant. They, uh, they changed the worship style and the worship that God had given to them. And they introduced a golden calf, and they began to worship it. 
Um, Moses is then alerted by God of the apostasy that has just taken place. Moses goes down and, uh, and, and then symbolically of what they've done, he breaks the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And then he asks an interesting question. Who is on the Lord's side? The tribe of Levi stood. And it was discovered that there was no apostasy from that tribe. They remained faithful to God. As a result of their loyalty to God and their faithfulness, God blessed them with the new role of being his representatives as the priests in the sanctuary as a result of their faithfulness. By the way, God still rewards people for being faithful to him. Never forget that God is faithful to those who are faithful. Very, very important. And so they were given that, uh, that task. And the role of the priest is actually a play out, an object lesson for the people, right down to their clothing. And Aaron, the, son, the sons, the descendants of Aaron, who was also a tribe of Levi, they were given the task of being priest and high priest in the sanctuary. And the other relatives of the tribe of Levi were given the role of assistance to the, the Aaronic priesthood. So you have the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. The dress of both was different. The dress of the priest, in fact, <clears throat> uh, the dress of the, of the priest uh, was white linen, and he had a white miter uh, on his head, and he had a sash around his waist and he could officiate in the tabernacle and uh, if you would get your bibles and turn with me to the book of revelation and i want to give you a sneak preview here the book of revelation chapter one and while you're turning to the book of revelation what's happening here in this story uh john is in vision the apostle john is in vision we're fast forwarding now this is after the cross. Jesus has rose, has risen from the grave. He has ascended to the heavenly sanctuary. And uh, John is in vision. And uh, as he goes into vision, he suddenly hears a voice behind him. And take note and see if you can see what's going on here. We're looking at verse 12. Okay? Revelation 1, verse 12. Then I, this is John speaking, turned to, to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw what? Seven golden lamps, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Does that dress sound familiar? It is the dress of the priest. And where was he standing? By the, by the golden lampstand, and that was located in the holy place. So right here, we see John in vision in the great control center in heaven. He sees Christ, our priest, who is advocating on our behalf. Did you, if you see that, please say amen. Very, very important. That is a sneak preview uh, of where we are going to be heading today and beyond. Now, <clears throat> so this was the priest, but the one in charge, uh, in, 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 in the days of Moses, it was Aaron, we have the garment of the high priest. So the high priest, he also had 
uh, the white linen garment as well. And by the way, that linen garment represented the righteousness of Christ. You know, our righteousness is filthy rags. Never forget, the only righteousness that the Father will accept is the righteousness of His Son. That's it. We have none to offer. And so that, that garb spoke of that righteousness, but he also had what was known as the ephod, and it came in two, two parts, the blue and uh, the apron. And by the way, those who wear aprons are people that serve. And Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And, and on the ephod, you had the, um, the breastplate, In the breastplate, there were a number of jewels. There were 12 jewels, and on each jewel was the name of of one of the tribes. And it was to remind Israel that God carries us on his heart. He carries us on his heart. We're precious to him. But not only that, but on the shoulders, there were two large onyx stones, and on them were written the the names of the tribes of Judah, And it was a reminder to us, uh, the words of Isaiah the prophet, that the government shall be upon his shoulders, that God carries us. He carries us. Now, on the breastplate, there were two unusual stones. One was known as the Thummim, the other, the Urim and the Thummim. And, And these stones were very unusual in that God communicated to his people through those stones that uh, the one to the right would light up in approval, the one to the left would light up in disapproval. You remember the story of uh, David when uh, he and his uh, 600 troops were held up in Ziklag, and uh, one day when they returned to their, their, their village, they discovered that the Amalekites had come and taken everybody away. Do you remember that story? And they all were, were mourning. David asked the high priest Abathar to bring the breastplate you remember the story? And he asked God a question. Do, if we pursue them, will we overcome them? And it was through the breastplate that God communicated yes. And he then went on and was able to rescue uh, his family. Another thing that was very important that was different from the priest is that, <clears throat> is that of the mitre also had a golden crown. And on the golden crown, it was written, holiness unto the Lord. And it was supposed to be a reminder to Israel that even our thoughts were to be pure, that we had to guard our thoughts. So the garment was to communicate a message to the people of God. But that robe represented the righteousness we get from Jesus Christ. By the way, if you need a reference for that, got your pencils ready, try Revelation 19, 7 and 8. Revelation 19, 7 and 8. But we also find that same white linen on the outskirts of the sanctuary. So now let's take a look at the brazen altar. In the, uh, as we walk in now into the sanctuary, um, the first thing we encounter is the brazen altar. There's actually three important places in the sanctuary. One is the brazen altar, the labor of water, and then we have, of course, uh, the tabernacle. But it was out in the, this area where the brazen altar and the labor of water were that was known as uh, the courtyard or the outer court. And we're going to focus our attention there today more specifically on the brazen altar. And 
and it was at the brazen altar that the Lord um, taught Israel how he was going to separate his people from sin. Now, I want to pretend for a moment. Now, what I'm going to share with you, you're going to have to track very carefully. Because if we're going to understand how God is going to save a sinner, uh, you're going to have to pay attention. There's a lot of goofy theology out there in the world, in the Christian world today, that would be cleared up really fast if we just studied the sanctuary. The science of salvation is there. So let's say my name is Caleb, and I am of the tribe of Judah. And one day as I am working on my tent, I realize the Holy Spirit brings to my uh, remembrance that I had been dishonest in a business dealing. And I had, in fact, broken God's law in my dishonesty. And so uh, my heart is repentant. I feel bad for what I've done, and I know what I have to do next. I go to my flock, and I look for a lamb, and I look for one wherein there is no blemish. Why? Because this lamb represents Christ, and there was no sin in Jesus. So I have to look for one that has no spot or blemish. Then I get my lamb, and I begin the process of heading now towards the tabernacle for what's going to happen next. As I get to the very edge, here's the tribe of Judah. As I get to the edge of the camp, uh, there is a plaza, a distance between the edge of the camp to the tabernacle of about two-thirds of a mile. Don't you know that that was a long, lonely walk? Don't you know that there were people in other tents watching? And they were probably saying, I wonder what Caleb did. You know, brothers and sisters, in every age, there has been pressure against God's people to serve God faithfully. There's always been pressure. But brothers and sisters, aren't we glad that Jesus faced the pressure for us? We have to be willing to face the pressure for him too. And so Caleb walks to the tabernacle. He gets to uh, the entranceway. And as he gets there, the, the, the priest meets him, greets him warmly, invites him in, and then begins to explain to him the role that he now has to play. And so Caleb goes over to the north side of the brazen altar, which is the side of slaughter. And there he gets his lamb. And Caleb places his hands upon the lamb and confesses his sin. Now, he does not confess it to the priest. He confesses it to God. The the plan of salvation only is, is based on personal accountability. I have to be willing to owe up to my sin or the plan of salvation will not work for me. So Caleb has to acknowledge what he did, the wrong he did. He confesses his sin. Now, symbolically, his sin now is transferred to the lamb. This was the lesson that God wanted his people to understand. Symbolically, upon confessing his wrong, he now confesses it, it now is transferred to the lamb. Now Caleb, with his own hand, has to now take the life of the innocent victim. And in doing so, he was to understand that it was his sin 
that would cause the death of the Messiah when the Messiah would come. God did not die for groups. He died for individuals. It was his sin. So he takes the life. Now, I want to pause, push pause here. Please understand this is something that's been lost in the Christian world. At the death of the animal, the atonement has not been made yet. Let that sink in. What has happened is that atonement has made, been made possible. The way for atonement has now been made possible, but the atonement has not been made yet. See, the Hebrew understood this. The Hebrew understood that just the death of the lamb did not do away with the sin. The priest had to minister that blood in the sanctuary before there could be, sin, there could be forgiveness. He understood that. If that blood didn't get in there, he knew his sin was not forgiven. So there are two critical roles here, the role of the blood and the role of the priest that's very critical for the atonement to take place. It was the priest that ministered that atonement through the blood of the lamb. Are you with me? So the priest then would capture the blood as the life ebbed out of the lamb. The priest caught it. And now the sin that was Caleb's and then transferred to the lamb is now transferred to the blood. The priest then would take uh, that blood and he would sprinkle it before the veil. And what has happened is that the, the sin that was Caleb's was transferred to the lamb, was then transferred in the blood, was then transferred to the sanctuary. Now Caleb leaves free. He is a, he is a pardoned sinner. The sin is no longer on him. That sin now is in here. And that's what each and every Israelite did day after day, week after week, and month after month until the day of atonement. Don't miss the date, the name of that, that, that festival, very important. And we're going to find out what took place on the day of atonement when we get to that study. But the day of atonement is very critical in the life of Israel, but it was also critical in understanding the plan of salvation. Are you with me so far? Very, very, very important. And so it was at the brazen altar that sin and the sinner were separated. Very, very important. So let's keep, let's keep going here. And uh, let's take a closer look at the altar. What was the altar made of? And you remember the highlighted parts is the part that you uh, respond to. Exodus 27 verse 1 says, You shall make an altar of, of acacia wood, also known as shittim wood. And the acacia wood, uh, the reason that was selected is because it was uh, the, the wood that was most resistant to decay and also the most resistant to the uh, invasion of insects. It would last longer. There was a reason for, um, for God to select that wood specifically. And so the brazen altar actually was made, was, was hollow, and we find out what happens next. Exodus 27.1, we continue. What was its size? Uh, Exodus 27.1 says, you shall make an altar of, again, acacia wood, five cubits long, five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. So basically, you're looking at... Uh, uh, an altar that was about seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet uh, wide, long, and four and a half feet tall. Uh, what were the other parts of the altar? 
And here we find in Exodus 27.2, you shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horn, its horn shall be of one piece with it and you shall overlay it with? With bronze. And so it was hollow. It was made out of wood and it was overlaid with bronze. This made it uh, very adaptable to being carried, which it would be. Children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and uh, scholars doing much research in, in, in biblical evidence uh, seems to imply that they actually moved about 50 times in those 40 years. And uh, by the way, you, I don't know if you can understand what, logistically what that must have been like. Because you're looking at approximately 2 million people. How do we know that? Well, because there were 600,000 men, Scripture tells us. You, then you've got to take in the women and the children. That's a lot, logistically. But uh, Moses had been well-trained uh, in the Egyptian military, so moving large groups, he had that training already but God also was giving him instruction on how to move things. Um, anyway, that in itself is another interesting study and, uh, and amazement. But those horns represented strength and power. And it's a reminder to us that God has provided everything we need for salvation. Amen. Everything we need. Okay, number uh, four. What was the sinner required to do at the brazen altar? We illustrated this. Leviticus 4, 2 and 4 says, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything that ought not to be done, and does any of them, he shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, and lay his what? His hand on the bull's head, and, the, and kill the bull before the Lord. Um, you will, I won't spend a lot of time into the various sacrifices uh, that were put forth. A lot of those sacrifices, the reason why there, was, there were differences is because it had to do with your station in life. If you were a very poor person and you couldn't afford a lamb, then you can catch some, some, some doves and you can bring that. And uh, if you were the priest and you committed a sin, you had to bring a bull. And the bull was a very expensive animal to sacrifice. And it was to send a message that the higher up you are in your sphere of influence, the greater damage your sin does. It's a greater price to pay. We all have a responsibility. You know, when, when the Lord places us in different positions in life, it's not only a privilege, it's a responsibility as well. Very, very important. And again, I, I, again, I want to uh, emphasize the fact that upon the death of the sacrificial animal, atonement was not made until the priest applied the blood. I, I cannot stress that enough. And if you, there's a place in, actually where Paul touches this, if you need another reference for this, try 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through, 20, uh, 17 through 19. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19. Paul here says that if Christ had not raised from the dead, then, then the death of the lamb was for nothing. That's basically is what he's saying. And when Jesus left earth, he went to the heavenly sanctuary to minister his blood on our behalf. And if you need a reference for that, try Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 9. Read those two chapters. It's a, it's a mystery how this has been missed by many in the Christian world. The, the, lamb, the, the sacrificial lamb makes salvation possible, but you need the administration of the priest as well. Um, so let's take a look at number five. 
What then happened to the sin which was transferred to the animal and caught in the blood? Leviticus 4.17 says, Then the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it how many times? Seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. Now, one thing you'll begin to realize right away is that everything in the sanctuary, if it's there, I don't care how small the detail, there's a message in it. The sanctuary is a sermon. And you can go as deep as you want to go. But everything in it has a message. Now, one thing we're going to find about the number seven, it's one of God's favorite numbers. And and in part, uh, the number symbolizes perfection. But in the sanctuary, it, it, it also brings our attention to something else. Were you aware that that day that Christ was sacrificed on our behalf, that he received seven wounds? Crown of thorns, one. The whips on his back, two. The scars on his hand, four. The scars on his feet, six. Do you remember the seventh? The spear on his side. Seven wounds, brothers and sisters, to pay for your redemption and for mine. Number six. Why did the animal need to be sacrificed? Hebrews 9.22. Without shedding of blood, There is no remission or forgiveness. You see, the law of God was broken and only one equal with the law could be sacrificed to save us from our sin. Jesus' blood had to be shed. Take a look at the note right below that. I'm going to read it aloud if you'll read along quietly with me. Sacrificing animals was necessary to help the people understand that the wages of sin is death. It was bloody and shocking, impressing the people with the solemn truth that their sin would one day cause the death of the Messiah. Thus, they looked forward to the cross in faith for salvation, while the Christian looks back to the cross in faith for salvation. There is no other source of salvation. Brothers and sisters, salvation is through faith. Now, it's really interesting, but many today teach that in the Old Testament, the people were saved by works. But in the New Testament, people are saved by faith. The sanctuary tells a different story. Everyone is saved by faith, and that's it. It's only by faith. There are no works that you and I can perform that can undo the sin in our life, friends. We have to look outside. You and I cannot fix ourselves. We need a source outside of ourselves to fix us. And God has provided it in his dear son. I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. By the way, the book of Hebrews was written by a Hebrew for Hebrews. You with me? That's not hard, is it? We're going to go to chapter 11. And chapter 11 is known as the what chapter? The faith chapter. That's right. A Hebrew writing to Hebrews about faith, not works. Take a look now. Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to go uh, take a look at verse 4. By faith who? Okay, you have to, I guess I'm waiting. Some of you haven't gotten there yet. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith who? Okay, verse 5. By faith who? 
All right, verse 7. By faith who? All right, verse 8. By faith who? Verse 11. By faith who? All right, uh, verse 20. By faith who? Verse 21. By faith who? Verse 22. By faith who? Verse 23. By faith who? Are you getting the picture? Did you notice, by the way, that there are no New Testament characters mentioned in that chapter? They're all Old Testament. Brothers and sisters, salvation is by faith in the Son of God, in the Messiah. There is no other way. It is by faith and faith only so that no man can boast. It is by faith. All right. Number seven. Whom did the sacrificial animal represent? A Hebrew tells us, John 1, 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John recognized through the Holy Spirit the Lamb of God. So what does the brazen altar point our attention to? The cross of Jesus Christ. It is the place where sin and the sinner are separated. It was God's lamb who paid the price for you and me. You know, I was reminded of a story, an incident that took place in in Ireland. Uh, It was along the coast. There was a large lighthouse, being from North Carolina, Uh, I enjoy lighthouses. Lighthouse stories get my attention. And uh, and this story takes place there along the coast. You know, uh, those lighthouse keepers have uh, a lot of work to do and and, uh, many times a very dangerous job. And on this particular day, his job was to paint the lighthouse. And, you know, the lighthouse, uh, uh, you know, takes a lot of abuse there. Uh, It's usually they set up those things on the coast where there are a lot of storms to save ships out to sea. So he was painting the lighthouse, and he had gotten up to the part now where the walk is on the very top, the walk that goes around the glass area. And those walks are typically made out of steel. And again, they're made out of the tough material to endure the storm. But there's a problem with steel along the coast. It tends to rust. And the walk around this lighthouse was in worse shape than the lighthouse keeper realized. So he was up there on this day, and he, was, uh, he had finished painting up to that point, and he was looking up to see what else he needed to paint, you know, the very, little higher up, and he leaned back on the railing, and the railing gave way, and this man plummeted uh, to the ground. Now, when he opened his eyes, he, he looked up at a beautiful blue sky, And he was sure that he had died and and gone to heaven. But when he tried to move, he realized he wasn't in heaven. He was in a lot of pain, but he was shocked that he had survived the fall. He couldn't understand how he survived the fall. And as he tried to to get to his feet and roll over, he, he felt all this pain. And then he realized that in his fall, he had landed on something. And when he got finally onto his knees, he looked over underneath that day, grazing under the lighthouse, was a flock of sheep. And when he fell, 
he landed on one of the sheep and the sheep broke his fall. It gave up its life but saved him. Brothers and sisters, when you and I fell, Jesus broke our fall and gave up his life to save you and me. That sacrifice took place not in heaven. It took place on planet earth. And what we find is that the outer court actually represents planet earth because it was here that Christ died. And if the outer court represents earth, what, what does the tabernacle represent? We're going to discover as we go along what the tabernacle represents. Let's take a look at verse 8. Why was it necessary for Jesus to die? Romans 2.23 says, For how many? All have what? All have sinned. That includes Pastor Baute. By the way, that includes the Pope. That includes everybody. Everybody is everybody. All is all. All have sinned. The Bible tells us, and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 623 then says, for the wages of sin is what? Is death. That's the result of sin. A separation from life, which God is life. Hebrews 9.22, then what happened? Without the shedding of blood is no what? Remission. So a substitute had to be given to save fallen humanity, and that substitute was found in Jesus, the life giver. And then 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, Christ died for what? Our sins according to the scriptures. And the, and, the, and the sanctuary reveals that to us. Now, I'm going to read aloud. If you'll read with me the note right below that. The sanctuary is priceless because it reveals God's plan to destroy sin and yet save the repentant sinner. Sin is a self-destructive principle. The wages of sin is death. When Adam and Eve died, this disease of sin and death passed to the entire human family. God's law and the penalty for bringing it could not be changed. So all people were doomed. But in an act of incredible love, the Father chose to send His Son into the world to die in your place and mine. Later we will discover that in His resurrection, uh, Jesus would rise again and mediate His shed blood on behalf of the repentant sinners through his work as Ihar priest in the heavenly sanctuary. And there's your reference for that. Thus it is through accepting Christ's death in mediation that the sinner is forgiven and what? Set free. The, the part we have to understand though is that Jesus did not die for groups. You and I look at a crowd and we see a crowd. Jesus doesn't do that. He looks into a crowd and sees individuals. Jesus died for individuals. You matter. I, I, I remember uh, a story I read of an incident that took place in England. Uh, there was a vessel, a steamship, leaving Liverpool, late 1800s. And there was a rainstorm, but that wasn't any big deal. The captain was very experienced, very seasoned. Uh, it was a passenger vessel. They had their passengers on board and their crew, and they headed out and they left. But as they pulled away and got further away from England, the storm intensified. And, uh, and it took the captain and the crew by surprise, the intensity of the storm. They realized they were in over their heads. And the captain gave the order to turn the ship around and head back to Liverpool. 
And as they did and they were heading back, uh, the storm buffeted that vessel and they lost power. And they began to drift uh, towards the coast and uh, they knew what would happen. Uh, they were going to be hitting rocks soon. And so the captain gave the order to abandon ship. And, uh, and so the captain oversaw the evacuation of the passengers and the crew. And when everyone had left and he was sure that all were safely gone, he then climbed over the railing to jump and push himself away from the vessel. He had his life preserver. And as he was over, he looked uh, and he thought he saw movement under a stairwell. So he climbed back over the railing and he walked towards the stairwell. And as he looked under there, he saw a 12-year-old boy hiding. He was a stowaway. He had broken the law. And he was on a sinking ship. The story goes on to say that the captain just looked at him. Now, there were no life preservers left. They were all passed out. All the lifeboats had left. Without saying a word, the captain unfastened his life preserver. And he put it around the boy, fastened it, walked him over to the railing, helped him over, and as far as he could, he pushed him, threw him out away from the sinking ship. Many, many hours later, as the passengers and the crew were gathered together on the shore, the first officer uh, gave the roll call, and to their utter amazement, they discovered that they, didn't, they hadn't lost any passengers or crew, but one. The captain did not make it. When the first officer announced that the captain had not made it, the young boy fell to his knees, sobbing with his face in his hands and crying out over and over again, he died for me. Dear friend, Jesus died for you. Jesus did not die for groups. He died for individuals. He died for you. Number nine, why did God make such a fantastic sacrifice for us? John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave. I want to stop right there. You and I have read this so many times, we can yawn to it. The reality is that in sending his son, God took a terrible risk. Jesus could have failed. He could have failed. Jesus was the target of every weapon of hell. You and I aren't. He was. From the cradle to the cross, he was under assault all the time. He could have failed. God took an incredible risk. What does this tell us about how God feels about you and me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever what? Believes in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. Why did God take such an incredible risk? Because he loves you. You know, I don't know if you realize this, but the value of something is determined by the person who's willing to pay the price for it. The value of something is determined by the price someone is willing to pay for it. 
You know, today, we have people that struggle with their self-worth. And we have all this curriculum about how to build up someone's self-worth. Brothers and sisters, the only thing you need is to look to the cross. Your value, your value was determined then. Your value, your worth. Jesus revealed to the whole onlooking universe what you were worth when he was willing to lay down his life as a ransom to pay your price for freedom. I want you to think about this. If tomorrow you became the doctor that found the cure to cancer and saved the world, God would not love you more, nor would you be more valuable to him. If tomorrow you were the one that pushed the button and nuked the entire planet and destroyed everyone, God would not love you less, nor would you be less valuable to him. Your worth was determined by the cross, and nothing can change that. Now, how much do I have here in my hand? Well, you probably can't see it, but I have $20. That's what I have in my hand, $20, okay? Now what's it worth? Now what's it worth? Now what's it worth? Dear friend, in spite of what the world may have done to you, in spite of how trashed you may have been, your value wasn't touched. Your value was determined at the cross and no one can take that from you. Number 10. What must I do to benefit from Jesus' sacrificial death? Acts 16.31 says what? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. By the way, Bible belief is more than just an intellectual assent. It requires action. There's a response that's required. And because the Bible says that even the devils believe and tremble, but they don't respond to Christ. So just intellectual understanding isn't going to do it. It's actually a response to Jesus that's so critically important. You know, as a pastor, one of the things that, that one of the frustrations that I face in working with people is to hear someone say, Pastor, that may be true for everyone else, but not for me. You don't understand what I've done. I have fallen too far to be saved. Friend, the bigger sinner you are, the bigger savior you need. And by the way, there's nobody here that's a bigger sinner than he's a savior. That's ridiculous. And and the other thing you have to remember too, okay, Jesus didn't come for good people. For the simple fact, there aren't any. Jesus came for sinners. Salvation, forgiveness, is only for someone who's blown it. It's kind of like, it's kind of like saying, you know, you're, you're running a temperature of 105, your body is racked, you have pain, and your friend comes to you and says, look, you've got to go to the hospital, and your response is, I can't go to the hospital, I'm sick. <laughs> Jesus is for sinners. He is for sinners. But the thing is, he doesn't leave us there. He's, he's all about transforming our lives. Let's take a look at number 11. What is the evidence? What is the evidence that the gift has been accepted? In Acts 3, 19 says, repent therefore and 
be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So the evidence is a life that responds. You know, this was really impressed upon me. I really got, I really got this with an incident that took place with one of my kids many, many years ago. Now, I'm going to preface my story by saying that as parents, we all do our best, don't we? Y'all got quiet on me. <laughs> as parents, we all do our best. So let that, I, with that, I preface my story. We were living at the time in Chattanooga, Tennessee. No, we weren't. We were in Collegedale, Tennessee. And, um, and at the time, our, our son Josh was three years old. And uh, we had a friend who had the nasty habit of using the Lord's name in vain. Okay? I talked to this person. I said, look, you, you call yourself a Christian. You're taking his name in vain. That's a violation of his law. You're supposed to respect that name. And they're like, yeah, huh? Anyway, well, much to my disappointment, our three-year-old started doing it. And uh, so I, I took Josh aside and I said, I said, Bubby, uh, we, we, don't, we don't use God's name that way. It's a very sacred name. And with his big brown eyes, you know, oh yes, I, I understand. And uh, the next day he launched out again. So this time I grabbed the Ten Commandments. We had a a little uh, Ten Commandments framed, and I grabbed it, and I took it over to him, and I read it to him. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And, uh, and he saw that, and, and he agreed that that was, that was a good thing. And uh, the next day, he launched out again. I grabbed the Ten Commandments again. And I came over to him, and I, I read it to him, and uh, he agreed, and this time we prayed. The next day was Sabbath, and we were in church. In fact, we were in the parking lot getting ready to head uh, into church, and, um, and as we're walking in, he fires off again. But this time he kind of eyeballed me to see what I was going to do next. So I knew he knew he shouldn't be doing that. And uh, I didn't know what to do. So I looked at my wife. My mom was with, me at the, at, with us at the time. And I said to my wife and to my, to my mom, I said, you, got, you need to go in. I don't want you to see what's going to happen next. <laughs> so Josh tried to follow me. And I said, uh-uh, get back in the car. So he got back in the car, they left, and then I went for a quick walk, and I said, Lord, I want to raise my kids to honor you. I cannot allow this, but I don't know what to do. I've done my best, and it's not working. He's continuing. So, Lord, the only thing I know to do now is to tan his hindquarters. And, Lord, I'm bigger than him. I can do that, and he can respond to me out of fear, but that's not the obedience you want. You want response out of love. And I don't know how to get him there. So Lord, I'm going to do the only thing I know to do. But I'm going to trust you to take care of the rest. So I went in the car. At the time, we had a 91 Mitsubishi Galant, so there wasn't a whole lot of space back there. And he, I, I sat on the seat. I looked over and I said, Bubba, I said, you know what you did was wrong. You know what's coming next, don't you? And he immediately assumed the position. <laughs> and that made me feel better because I knew he was under conviction. He knew. Uh, now, what, what I like to use, I liked, what I like to do, not like, like I took pleasure in, but what we used was a paint paddle. You know, they sting, and I figured that would do it. The problem is, I didn't like have them stored in my car. And I thought, well, what am I going to do? I don't have the paint paddle with me. 
Then I remember what my dad used, and I survived. So I went for the belt. So I had my belt. I had Josh over here. He was assumed the position. And uh, I looked carefully, and I just saw a whole lot of stuff that would deflect the blow, you know, and I thought, I hope this... I just wanted to get him one good time because there's an incredible connection between here and here and, uh, and hopes to bring an end to this activity. So I came through... Uh, to get him, and by the time it touched his pants, it barely touched him, and he was like, oh, yeah, I learned my lesson, and, uh, and I said, no, no, that didn't count, because something had deflected the blow, <laughs> so I told him to go back and assume the position, and uh, so this time I decided I was going to come through with a whole lot more gusto, because I figured that it would, the blow was going to be deflected again, and I wanted to impress him, and so this time I came through with much more gusto. And by the time the belt reached his pants, it barely tapped him. Again, the blow was deflected. It was at that moment that I realized what had deflected the blow. In an effort to, to keep him from being, from being hurt, I put the buckle on the backside of my hand to keep it away from him. But when I came down, I hit myself in the knee. <laughs> now, the first time I did it, it didn't register. But the second time I did it, it registered. And I was in a lot of pain. I dropped the belt. I was writhing in the back seat of my 91 Mitsubishi Galant. And, uh, and all of a sudden, I heard this little voice. And when I looked over, his eyes were welled up with tears. And his arms were stretched out to me. And he said, Daddy, I am so sorry. And I realized that God had given to me his heart. Josh had made a connection between what he was doing with the pain I was experiencing. And I said to him, Bubby, please don't do that anymore. It, it hurts daddy. And you know what? That was the end of the issue. Brothers and sisters, Victory is had when we come to realize what our sin does to Jesus. It's not ripped out of our hearts. Obedience is an expression of gratitude, friends. Obedience is an expression of gratitude. Number 12. Why should I confide? Why should I be confident that my life of sin is a thing of the past? and that I can live a new victorious life in Jesus. Philippians 1, 6 says, being what? Oh, that's a beautiful word. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has, what? Begun a good work in you, will what? Complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Dear friend, I can be confident because Jesus promised. Now, we're learning in the sanctuary that the sinner has to cooperate, right? For Jesus to be successful in my life, I have to be willing to cooperate with him in that plan to transform and to redeem me. Let's take a look at number 13. Why do some people fail in their Christian experience? Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep are gone how? We have turned everyone to whose way? His, his own way. Isn't that right? The reason people fail is because in Jesus, what people want is a Savior, but not a Lord. What people want is fire insurance, but they want to live their life however way they want. It doesn't work that way. 
because the wages of sin is death. And God is trying to reclaim us from that. He must not only be my Savior, He must also be my Lord. I must be willing to respond to Him and to let Him lead me in my life. And if He does that, He's going to transform me, friend, and He's going to transform you too. So I want you to imagine, if you will, that in each of our hearts, there is a throne. And when we're brought into this world, you and I sit on that throne. We determine what we're going to do. We determine where we're going to go and how we're going to do it and what we're going to say. We're in charge. By the way, that leads to death. But when we ask Jesus into our life, now he sits upon that throne. And it's not, that's not only, it's no longer my desire, my will that I'm following, but now it's his will, which, by the way, gets informed as we study the Bible. We'll talk more about that later. But, but that's the key. I got to leave him on that throne. When I first gave my life to Christ, I used to be a very vindictive person. I had grown up with quite a bit of abuse. There came a point in my life that I said, I'm not taking it anymore. And if anybody did something to me, you are getting it right back with interest. I was going to pay, you were going to get, you were going to pay for it. And that's how I went. I took care of my problems with my fists. But when I tried to take my life and God broke into my world and kept me from taking my life, I made a decision to follow him. It was very interesting. My whole life was so messed up. There were so many things wrong in my life. But the first thing God asked of me was to give up the spirit of, of revenge. And uh, he showed me a text that says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So when someone did something to me, my initial response was to just, just let them have it. But a voice would speak into my mind. The text, would, I would be reminded, God said, no, remember, I'm taking, care of, I'm taking care of you now. Let me take care of it. And so I had a choice to make. Either leave Jesus on the throne and do what he asked, or pull him off and do what I wanted to do. You and I have a decision to make each day who we're going to follow, him or me. Does that make sense? Each of us have that decision to make. And by the way, as we draw closer to Christ and his word, our no strengthens, our no to self strengthens. The power is in the word of God. We'll talk more about that as we go along. Um, so, by the way, let me tell you what this has done. This improved my marriage because God began tapping me on my shoulder in the way I was treating and talking to my wife. This improved my parenting skills in the way I was treating my children. God taps me on the shoulder. Hey, I don't dig that. You need to stop. Are you with me? You know, if, if, you, want, if you want to improve your marriage, there is nothing like the gospel that will do it. And I mean that. There is nothing. It's the gospel that will improve your marriage. And, um, and not only that, if you've got a gossip problem, take it to Jesus. God will help you with that. Or dishonesty. We've got to leave him on the throne of our hearts. And if we do, the first thing that's going to improve is our home life, friends. First thing. Number 14. How can I know that Jesus accepts me and that I am his child? Titus 1.2 says, God who cannot lie did what? He promised before time began. The power is in the word. God promised. He said that if I confess my sin, that he is faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. John says that we are called the children of God. How do I know that? Because God promised. But we have to be willing to believe him. I grew up in the 
Southern California. And, um, and there was a story I heard that left such an incredible impression upon me that even though I heard the story as a child, it stayed with me all these years. The story took place in the Old West in a, in a town, one of those old Western towns. Um, there was a young man uh, who was very well liked by the people in the community. He was very well respected. Uh, he, he, he was a very hardworking young man and he was very likable. But he kind of got mixed up in the wrong crowd. And uh, he found himself one night drinking with his friends and they decided to have a poker game. They were having a poker game. The young man actually was pretty good. He was uh, meeting with success. Well, pretty soon, people were getting frustrated with it. And uh, yelling started, accusations of, of cheating, guns were drawn, a shot was fired, and a man lay dead on the floor. The young man had, had shot and killed him. Well, it wasn't uh, a long trial. There were too many witnesses. And the young man was sentenced to death. But the people in the community knew that he would never have done it if he hadn't been drinking. They knew he was a good kid. And so they wrote letters to the governor asking the governor to pardon him. So many letters came. The governor was overwhelmed and he decided to pardon the young man. But instead of mailing it, he decided to hand deliver it. He wanted to see who was this young man that uh, the community had such a response to. So he went down uh, to that part of California. He spoke to the warden, and he said to the warden, you know, I want to know what this guy's like. So I brought with me uh, some clothing f- uh, from a Catholic priest. I'm going to be dressed as a priest. I don't want him to know who I am because I want to get to know him. So he went down into the, uh, to the cell where the young man uh, was going to face execution in a few days. And as he walked in, the young man looked up and he said, what are you doing here? And the priest said, uh, I, I've come, I just want to spend some time with you, I'd like to talk with you. And the young man said, I don't want to talk to you. Um, I didn't call for any priest. He said, I understand, son, but just give me a few minutes, I'd like to get to know you a little bit. And the young man said, I- I'm not interested in, in you being here, I'm not interested in what you have to say. And uh, the young man, uh, the priest said, uh, son, I, I understand, just give me a few minutes and then I'll leave. And the young man says, no, you don't have anything I want. You need to go now. And so the priest just looked at him. And so finally he turned on his heels and he left. Uh, minutes later, the, uh, the warden came down to see him. He said, uh, hey, what, what did the governor tell you? And uh, the young man says, Governor, the governor hasn't been here, just some priest. He said, no, that wasn't a priest. He was dressed up, it was the governor. He came to pardon you. And the young man realized the mistake he made. The reason I remember the story is because what he said on the day they executed him. He said, today I do not die because of my crime. He said, I die because I rejected the pardon. My friends, the death of Christ was for all here. We all have a choice to make. It's not an automatic. The plan of salvation is built on personal accountability. God never violates a freedom of choice. You and I have a choice to make. The gift 
It is a gift. Number 15. What does true conversion look like? 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man be in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. God views you as a new person, friend, and then the process begins of transforming the life. Revelation, excuse me, Romans 12.2 says, do not be conformed to this world. Don't be like everybody else instead, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we're going to learn that that takes place as we study God's holy word. Uh, the next one, John 13.35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have what? Love for one another, and that begins in the home. 1 John 3.22 says, we what? Keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in whose sight? His sight. Ephesians 6.18 says, praying how often? Always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. By the way, that means you have an, an attitude of prayer. The line of communication is open between you and the Lord. Acts 1.8 says, you shall be witnesses to me. There is nothing more convincing of the power of God than to have someone who's been reclaimed from sin sharing the story. And I believe that's why God called me to this this job. What I'm sharing with you isn't theory. I, I am living it. And I want others to live it too. He wants us to share that. There's a world out there dying to hear it. Number 16. What wonderful promises come uh, with Christian life. Philippians 4.13. I can do what? All things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.19. God shall supply how many of your needs? All your need. Mark 10. By By the way, that's not greed. It's need. There's a difference. God has promised to take care of you. But he's not going to spoil you. He's a smart parent. And the congregation said? Mark 10, 27, with God, all things are possible. John 15, 11 says that your joy may be, now, scripture doesn't exaggerate. That your joy may be what? Can you imagine the Lord coming to you saying, I got got some more to give you, and you go, you know, I I have no place for it. You're not going to be disappointed. You risk nothing by giving your life to Christ. He is the source of joy. Everything else is a mirage. It is, it is a destination that will forever outdistance you. You'll never arrive. It'll never be enough. But Jesus is enough. He is enough. To look for joy anywhere else is, it will be an act of futility. John 10, 10. That they might have what? Life and to have it more abundantly. Hebrews 13, 5. Jesus says, I will never leave you and forsake you. He's by your side, friend. I know you may be going through a difficult time right now, but you are not alone. God is with you. Just hang on. Um, Hebrews 13, 6, I will not fear what man can do to me. If God is on your side, he's bigger than anything you're facing. And John 14, 27, my peace I give to you. I find this interesting. I always thought that peace was the absence of strife. No. Peace is a person. He is the Prince of Peace. God will give you peace in the midst of whatever you're going through right now. Why? Because if God allows it, he's got something good for you through it. A better day is coming. I think of the words of the prophet Isaiah. If you need a reference, here it is, Isaiah 26.3, where the prophet says, thou will keep him in perfect peace, 
whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. And that trust will be rewarded. So at the brazen altar, we discover the cross of Jesus. The brazen altar is the place where the sin and the sinner are separated. So here is your chance now to respond to the Lord Jesus. Will you decide right now to accept Jesus' plan to save you, friend? You know, there may, there may be somebody here who's never made that decision. There may have been somebody here who may have since walked away from that decision. If there's someone here who would like to make that decision for the first time, will you raise your hand? You want Jesus to be the Lord of your life. You want to accept his plan of salvation on your behalf. You've never asked for it before, and you'd like to do it now. Is there anyone else who's never done it before? Give you a chance to respond. Okay, maybe there's someone who's, who's made that decision and has walked away from it. You've been thinking about coming back to the Lord. Now you see that God loves you. If you've, if you've walked away and you want to return to Jesus, will you raise your hand now? In here. Amen, amen. God bless you. God bless you. Is there anyone else? Anyone else? If today you want to renew your commitment and to ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life once more, will you please stand? Lord, we, we stand in shock awe that you took such an incredible risk to save us. Knowing the ingratitude that you would meet with, realizing how few would accept your offer, knowing the depths of humiliation that you would be drugged through and finally murdered, that you were willing to go through all that for us. Oh Lord, give us eye salve that we can see and understand more deeply the love you have for each one and what our worth is in your eyes so that, Lord, we can honor you with our lives and return to you but feebly which you have poured out upon us so generously. Lord, you know that the hand that was raised here today, I pray for a special anointing upon that precious brother. You brought him here today. You wanted him to hear this message because you wanted him to know that you love him. You've been tracking on his life and you have great plans for him. But Lord, you know all of us that stood here. Father, we, our promises to you are ropes of sand. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And help us to remember that the Holy Spirit always works through the word. So Father, bless each here. May the things we learned here be meditated upon and then shared with others to a world that is dying. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.